Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if, one, if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, just thank you that we're able to gather here this morning. God, I just pray that you would eliminate distractions and um, just help our, our um, focus to be um, on your word. And I just pray that you would speak through Kevin and um, help us to all learn and grow in our love for you, God. Just thank you so much for your grace and your mercy and, and for sending Jesus um, to rescue us, Lord. And we thank you, God. So good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Am I on here, Mac? There we go. All right. I'm doing something wrong there. Let me turn this. I've been told by Brent that whenever I'm having issues with my microphone, it's my fault. So there we go. I think I think I'm gonna I fix whatever was happening there. So students, welcome back. Good to see you guys. Hope you guys had a good break. Um Hope you had a good uh, Christmas and, and New Year's. Um, for I know, I know that most of you guys were back on, on Monday, and some of you guys were here last Sunday, but for those of you guys that weren't, um, we, we started back up in Romans uh, last Sunday, and uh, we did a review of some verses that we looked at back in November. So specifically, we looked at verses 6 through 11 um, and, and Romans chapter 5 and, and talked about a few key things. So uh, let me just, you know, I, I, like I said last week, I know it's been, for some of you guys, probably almost a month and a half, two months since you've been here with us and, and helped uh, kind of walk through the book of Romans with us since we did an Advent series during the month of December. And so let me guys, let me give you guys kind of like a, a quick recap overview of what we've seen, what we have seen in the book of Romans up until uh, this point. And then we'll look a little bit more specifically at today's passage and, and try to draw out what Paul uh, might have for us. And so uh, kind of quick overview, Romans chapters 1 through 4 basically kind of go like this. Paul starts off by, by making this argument that we are all sinners, both Jewish, uh, religious leaders, and 
uh, members of Jewish synagogues and those that participate in Jewish religion, that, that they are sinners as well as Gentiles. That's kind of the, the point he's been making. That, hey, everyone starts off at the, the same kind of place in life that we're all sinners uh, standing underneath of God's wrath. And then he moves into, towards the end of chapter 3 and, and, and beginning of chapter 4, this, this concept of that we are justified. That means declared not guilty uh, by faith in Jesus Christ. And he, he spent about a chapter talking about that, how that could be. He, he uses the Old Testament to kind of be uh, some proof for some of that, how God has always operated through declaring men and women righteous by faith. And he, he uses the examples of, of David and Abraham. And then when you move into Romans chapter 5, we talked about this last week, but that, that in light of being a follower of Jesus, that means being declared not guilty of your sin, but being in Christ instead, that that, that good news of justification should dictate practically how we live now. That it, that it should cause in us not just this intellectual idea of God where, okay, I'm not going to hell anymore, or hey, I'm going to spend eternity in heaven with Him, but it should also, in many ways, uh, calls us to live a, a, a certain kind of life. That it should calls in us to respond to, to stressors and things in our lives a certain way, right? And we said that, Paul said, hey, the, the, the practical realities of being in Christ is that we have peace with God, which should automatically then bring peace to our own hearts concerning the way we live. That it also gives great hope to us because we know what God has declared to be true of us. That is that we are in him and that he is for us. And then lastly, we said this, that, that we can expect suffering as followers of Christ, but in that suffering, there is a, a production of hope, among other things, that God is doing a work in us. And so that suffering is actually a good thing for a follower of Jesus because it allows us to see what we're really made of, which is Jesus, which is that we are in him. It allows us to see and know for sure, yes, I have placed my faith, my hope, and my trust in him. Even if things have gone terribly, I still have this ultimate hope and place and trust in, in Jesus, it placed in him, excuse me. And so... Basically, last week we said, okay, so in light of that hope, in light of that peace, right, and knowing what God has done for us and how that kind of forces us to walk out our reality in a certain way, here's something else you can know to be true on a practical level here and now. God loves you. Right, and in, in 2018, as you head into this year, we're in the first month of 2018, if there's one thing that you should know is that God loves you. Right? And we said that we can know that both internally through the giving of the Holy Spirit if you are a follower of Christ and externally in the fact that Jesus died on the cross for you and then now because he died for you, he also rose again and intercedes on your behalf in the throne room of heaven with God the Father. That those are both internal truths with the Holy Spirit and external truths that come from, these are historical facts of what Jesus Christ did. And I ended kind of last week with this charge, kind of asking you guys to resolve with me, and you know, we didn't call it a resolution, but to resolve with me to, to fight to experience more joy in 2018. 
Right? And that kind of led us to say that we experience joy by reflecting on what our identity is in Christ. That means knowing what Jesus says is true about us, not what we see in our everyday circumstances, that we would confess and repent of sin and take that seriously, and that we would pursue obedience and the renewing of our mind daily by reading God's Word and being in prayer. And, and my, my, my charge was, is if we do those things, here, here's what I know to be true. If you are seeking the Lord and seeking joy in Him, you're not going to be disappointed. Right? Now, now, some of you guys are, I, I know some alarm bells are immediately going off. You're like, well, wait a minute, like, I'm not always happy. Well, first of all, joy is different from happiness, okay? Like, they're, they're, they're two separate things. Joy is this indescribable feeling and understanding even when things can be bad, right? It's a, it, it's a different experience from happiness because it's not based upon circumstances. Joy is based upon truth. It's based upon facts. But the reality is, is that if you are pursuing God— placing him first and seeking to to be renewed daily in your mindset right with the things from his word and of him i can promise you that 2018 is going to be more joyful for you i can't promise that you're going to get that new car or you're going to get the internship you want or you're going to get the the raise or the promotion you want or you're going to have healthy kids but i can promise that you're going to experience more joy because you're going to be placing your faith and trust in someone who does not fail and that there is ultimate joy found in him. So when we get to verse 12 then of Romans chapter 5, we're going to see a shift. Right? Chapters one, 3 and 4 kind of talk about how justification comes to us through Christ. Uh, chapter 5 talks kind of about the, the, what, the what of justification. Like what happens? What do we experience? What can we know? And how, how does it affect us? And then when we get to, to, to verse 12... We're going to start answering, Paul's going to begin to answer the why of justification. Why did God do it this way? Why, why is the gospel set up the way that it is? Why did Jesus have to die? Why does life look the way it does? Why, does, why could this be the only way that God might save us? So let me give you guys a disclaimer before we start looking at the text this morning. There's going to be a lot of heavy theology and doctrine this morning. I mean, and I mean a lot. Because the, the verses this morning uh, are, are pretty heavy with it. And I would say that if you read through these verses kind of quickly, you're going to think, Paul's making no sense here. What the heck is he talking about? This doesn't make, like he's talking about Adam. What, you know, what in the world is going on? But I would actually argue that these verses are some of the most dense and concise verses on understanding sin and what God has done in the entire totality of Scripture. I think if you took these verses— you know, just verses 12 through 21 and said, okay, we're going to read through these that you can get a full understanding of everything God has done in these 10 verses. And I truly believe that if you, if you take the time to break them down and try to understand what Paul is saying, he'll give you the full way of understanding a ton of things about who we are and who God is. So go with me to Romans chapter 5, and we're going to start, start looking at verses 12 through 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. All right, so let's stop there. 
So we read through that, and first of all, let's start with this. The ESV is a little clunky here, right? Because it's a literal translation. So we read through some and it's like, this doesn't even sound like, like normal English grammar. Anybody with me there reading through that? You're kind of like, what the heck is like, he trying to say, right? You, never, you always get to these moments where the translation is more literal and you can kind of start processing through some of this. And you're like, this is not good grammar. Right? This looks like Kevin wrote it. This is not, this is not good. Right? And so let, let's, let's look at verse 11, and it's going to help us understand the transition that Paul is trying to make. So let me read verse 11 to you. He says, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So here you have Paul who's just made this statement in verse 11 saying, We have great joy. We are excited and rejoicing in what God has done for us, and we are experiencing that joy here and now. And so when we get to verse 12, what's happening is Paul is anticipating his readers who are going through this having some objections, saying, like, what, what, do, you, what do you mean we can be joyful? What do you, what do you mean? Like, ha- Paul, haven't you seen how messed up the world is How can you be positive that justification works in this way? How can you be positive that justification is even effective to have purchased us in the way that you're talking about? How how are you so sure of this, Paul? How can you possibly be sure that the life of one man can cover the sins of many? And so Paul's going to say, all right, verse 12, here's your answer to that question. Here's how I know that what Christ did is sufficient for us. All right, so look at verse 12 with me again, and this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning because this particular verse right here is just deep, deep, deeply rooted in a lot of theological uh, minutia and jargon. All right, look at verse 12. Therefore, all right, so remember, therefore, in light of that rejoicing and justification, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin— And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, let me start by breaking this down by asking you guys a question. All right? And I want full participation here because sometimes I ask a question and like half of you guys are zoned out. All right? So zone in with me here for a second or I'm going to speak up so I get your attention. All right. How many of you guys ever find yourself doing something or developing habits that you strongly dislike in yourself? Okay, good. Like 90% of the room is honest. There's about 10 of you who either aren't paying attention to me, even though I screamed right before I asked the question. All right, now keep your hand up. This is important. All right, now keep your hand up. Now, of those habits that you see yourself forming or that you have, how many of you, when looking at them, would say, you know what? I saw a lot of those same habits in my father or my mother. Everybody notice that, like, all the hands in the room stay— Okay, you can put your hands down now. Thank you guys for participating. Okay, everyone notice how that was kind of universal, right? I remember as a, as a kid, right, and some of you guys have heard these stories at times about my father, right? Whenever my dad would build furniture, it was just not—it was not a good day in the Anderson house, right? You know, and it's always, you know, like the, the Ikea furniture or the Walmart furniture or the Target furniture, whatever. It's always cheap, particle board, and— you know, some engineer designed it somewhere, and they always, it's either missing a screw, or it's missing a piece, or a part doesn't line up, and my dad could not mentally handle that. He just, he just couldn't do it. 
And, and you know, and like the funny thing would be was when I was really little, like my mom would be trying to help him. And you know, I gotta give my mom a lot of credit. She is like the most patient human being on the planet. She'd be like, it's okay, like we'll figure this out. And he's like, it's not gonna work. You know, it's just like, dude, it's just a, a $20 white shelf. It's not that big of a deal. Like it's not, like if you break that thing right now, you can go find another one and maybe they drilled the holes right on that one. I don't know. Or you can do your own. But he was always super, super frustrated. And I remember as I got older and I started helping my dad, and he's unloading on me one afternoon as we're putting together this bunk bed. I remember thinking to myself, my dad's kind of a jerk when we're doing these things. I love my dad, but he's kind of a jerk. I am not going to be this way. I am never, ever going to do this when I get older. Right? I am not. Now, guess what? So Jackie and I got married, and we got some of that cheap furniture you get at those big box stores about a week into our marriage, and um, I was putting it together, and let's just say that the nightstand that we had uh, made its way through the air across our room. And the only way that we now avoid, right, me getting angry putting furniture together in our house is, is this. Jackie puts most of the furniture together in our house. And she's not here this morning to confirm that to you, but the, the reality is, is that that is the way it happens in our house. That when we are putting things together, either Jackie takes point and I'm just kind of like on the sidelines keeping the kids away from everything that's going on, or Jackie just does it on her own without me there. Now Jackie also loves doing that by herself anyway, so it's kind of like, you know, like relaxing to her. But for me, if something is supposed to work a certain way and you have directions and outlines and it doesn't start working that way, that's when problems arise internally for me. And I start mimicking my father's behavior even though I hated it. I hated everything about that growing up. And I still hate everything about it and what I'm displaying to my own kids. And yet, I still continue in the sins that my father committed. And here's the reality. I saw my grandfather too. He did the same thing. And here's what Paul is saying in verse 12. This is, there's a reason why I'm sharing all this. Paul is essentially saying in verse 12, human beings are like their first parents, Adam and Eve. That, that you as a human being in this room this morning struggle with following the example of our first mother and father, Adam and Eve. That, that is what he's saying in, in verse 12. Now, this is known doctrinally as the doctrine of original sin. Okay, so if you're like, okay, so Kevin's saying I'm a sinner because of Adam and Eve, and the doctrinal term for that is a, a original sin, and it, and it means the tendency to sin innately in all human beings, and it was developed in the writing, kind of like, at least in our understanding for what we have in history, in the writings of St. Augustine, and, it, and he kind of said that sin is held to be inherited from Adam and is one of the consequences of the fall. This is the kind of the, the doctrine of original sin. And Paul presents original sin to us here in verse 12 as a chain reaction. Right, look at what he says, right? He that, says that sin entered through one man, and he's talking about Adam. And that death came about because of that sin. And death came to all because all sinned. But here is what he's, he's pointing out to us, right? That death came to all because all sinned, because we are in Adam. Tracking with me? That because we are in Adam, right, we start out as human beings guilty of sin, and therefore death comes about. Now, 
let me, some, I, first of all, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in more depth because I know that immediately some of you guys, the, like the, the alarm bells are already going off. I hate everything that Kevin's saying right now. Okay, let me start with this. One, this is what the Bible says. So anything that we're saying this morning, like remember, this is coming from the scripture and I'm just trying to kind of point it out to you. Okay, but let me give you some reasons why I'm convinced that this is what the scripture is teaching here. All right, look back at verse 12 with me real quick, and I'm going to read the last part to you. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. All right, now that word sinned there, that last word in verse 12, is the same word for sin that we see through, throughout the, the scripture, and it literally means to miss the mark or, or not meet the standard that God has set. But as you guys know, in language we have these things called tenses, and tenses matter. Right? If I speak in the past tense, right, I'm talking about something that happened in the, hey, thank you guys, this is great. Right? If I'm talking in the future tense, I'm talking about something that is going to happen. Right? The tenses matter and dictate a lot to us. Now here's the thing, Gr- the Koine the, the Greek that we have in the New Testament has far more tenses than we have in English. In this particular time, Paul uses the aorist tense for this word. Now, some of you guys are like, what the heck does aorist mean? I have no idea what he's talking about. Some of you guys that are note takers, A-O-R-I-S-T, aorist. All right, I know some of you guys are like, how did I even spell that? What's going on? All right, here, here is what the aorist tense dictates. It's not like the past tense. It indicates to us that it was one single past action. So when he says there in verse 12... And so death spread to all men because all sinned, and then I would add this, in one single past action. What he's saying there is we are all guilty of sin and therefore subject to death because of the one man's sin that's mentioned there in verse 12. That we are all guilty of Adam's sin. You know, in discussing here in verse 12, um, the, the, this idea of what that, that word there for sin means, uh, the theologian William Barclay, he was a Scottish theologian, says this, Sin and death entered into the world because all men were guilty of one act of sin, that is Adam's. So we are born, so here's kind of what we're seeing up until this point in verse 12, that we are born sinners with a death sentence, according to what Paul says here, because of Adam, because of our first father. Because of his sin. Now, how many, guys, how many of you guys like that? Yeah, not a single hand in the room, right? Like, I'm, I'm guilty because of Adam? That stinks. Like how, like, how many of you guys are internally saying to yourself right now, that sounds really unfair? Yeah. Show of hands. At least Gene raised his hand. Thank you, Gene. Everyone else. You guys are all Western and you're living in America. I know how you're feeling about this right now. You're feeling the exact same w- way that I was when I read this. Baloney, right? Like, I, I didn't sin in the Garden of Eden. How in the world can I be guilty of this? This is ridiculous. How, how can this be? Right? How because of Adam's sin and then me just being born, how can I be guilty for his actions? Right? And so two common objections kind of raised to this idea of original sin. Right? One is, is this, that we don't think people are inherently sinful. That, that tends to be the first problem we have with this idea. The second one is, it's not fair. 
So let's answer those two objections for you this morning, because guess what? Even though those tend to be our objections, I'm going to prove to you this morning that, that we are wrong for holding them. That when I read verse 12 and first said, hey, that's really unfair, that, by, that as I thought through it more and processed it some more, that it was my own sinfulness that was causing me to object to this. So let me, let me kind of process through these objections for you. Okay, number one, right? Well, I don't think people are inherently sinful to begin with, Kevin. They're not. Original sin is real and true, right? The Bible is saying that both right here in verse 12, but turn over to Psalm 51 with me really quick, right? This is David after he's sinned and slept with Bathsheba, and if any of you guys are familiar with that story, not only did he, he sleep with this woman who was married, and he was married too, by the way, but then he had a she became pregnant, and instead of like just kind of owning up to his sin, he sent um, Bathsheba's husband out into the front line of war to have him killed so that he could then redeem her and marry her. You know, it's like just the sketchiest of sketchy things that someone could do. He basically had a guy murdered to try to cover up his sin. Right, of course God didn't let him get away with it. And this psalm is his response to that sin kind of being laid out before him. Right, and look at what he says in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Okay, let me give you another translation for that, right? This comes from the Christian Standard Bible. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born, and I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Meaning that, that David had this idea and this concept and this notion of original sin and how it worked. Like, I've been sinful from the womb. Right? I was just talking to, to Caitlin back there, little William, right? Really cute, less than two weeks old. He's sinful. Right? Has, has been from the moment of conception. We are born sinners according to what the scriptures tell us. Now, not only do I have the Bible backing me up on this belief, but guess what? I've got two kids. And some of you guys are like, oh, you know, kids are, you know, they're just so pure. I've heard people say that they're just so pure, they're so sweet. Kids are sinful and wicked... And they display that from a very, very young age. Um, kids inherently think the universe is designed to operate and serve them. Now, if you don't believe me, I would be happy to offer free babysitting to you to watch my six-year-old and my three-year-old anytime so that you can get a front, front row view of what original sin looks like. Okay, you know, I always kind of, you know, as I kind of studied the Bible and came to this understanding of, of what God says is true about us, as, as that we are sinners from birth, right, having kids strongly confirmed that teaching to me. I will never forget the first time, right, my kids, you know, they're one and a half, two years old, and Jackie would tell them something, and got you, a lot of you guys know my wife. Jackie is like the sweetest person on the face of the planet. Right? She's constantly serving and loving on these kids. And you know, she might give them just like a simple instruction like, hey, pick your truck up and go take it to the playroom. And in those moments, right, that little one and a half, two-year-old just stamps their foot in the ground and goes, no. No. This is a common occurrence in my house. Now, some of you guys are like, you know, you know oh, that's a learned behavior. My kids don't go to daycare. They don't. They don't interact with that many other kids. They stay home with my wife most of the time. They might have little play groups here and there. But most of the time, they're at home with mom. So their primary influence 
is Jackie. Do you think Jackie's going to teach them to disobey her? Not likely, right? Because inherently in Josiah and Gideon, right, written on their hearts is this defiance of authority and shepherding. And so as Jackie wants to parent or shepherd them, right, they, right, are hardwired to defy that. You know, and me as their dad, like the first time I see them doing something, I'm like, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you for talking to my wife that way. You know, and Jackie, in her love and her grace and her mercy, both corrects me and them. And he says, no, 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 whoa, 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 okay, mom, mom's trying to, to help you out here, right? And some people, right, here's the funny thing to me about how people deal with the sinfulness in children, right? Some people think it's really funny, right? Oh, it's so cute, right? Guess what happens to that cuteness as that child gets older? They're less cute, but the defiance actually spirals out of control, right? And that, def that defiance goes from just saying, to, saying no to full-out rebellion and disrespect, and at times self-destructive, right? How many of you guys have siblings? Most of you guys in this room. How many of you guys with siblings ever fought with your sibling? How many of you guys ever became physically violent with your sibling when you were younger? Most of you guys in this room. How many of you guys were had to be taught that that wasn't okay? Right? No one ever taught me that hitting my sister was like something to do. It was like, hey Kevin, if she's, if she's taking a toy from you, you can punch her. No one ever sat down and had that conversation with me, right? Inherently, right, in my selfishness and in my sinfulness as a child, if my sister ever encroached upon my territory, because remember, every human being thinks that the universe exists for their glory, right? If Kristen stamped into that space and tried to interrupt my kingdom, she met the fists of justice. This is a true story, all right? I was like eight, Right, this, by the, this is like proof that God works in mysterious ways before you ever know him. All right, we're outside, and, and, and it's cold in the winter in Virginia, and there's this white stuff on the ground called snow. And we have about like eight inches of it. And I'm like building this fort, and I turn around, and a snowball thrown at full speed meets me in the face from Kristen. And she's sitting there. <laughs> what do you think a wise eight-year-old is going to do in that moment? I tackled her and then grabbed her head and held it into the snow. I can still vividly remember my mom's beating on this window we have in the front of our house, screaming, stop, 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 right? And as I, I, I'm just thinking in like internally in my head, like, now she knows how this feels, you know? And as I pull her head out of the snow, she goes, because <gasps> you can't breathe in snow, Kevin, you idiot, right? I was literally suffocating my sister, but in my rage... In that moment, because she had encroached upon my kingdom, I, I, by the way, I never laid a hand on my sister again after that. Scared the living daylights out of me. Right? But no one taught me to retaliate or act in that way that my own sinfulness led me to do that because original sin is real. Right? No one teaches this to us. No. It's a universal fact that human beings are not inherently good. Even though there's popular philosophies out there that will say things like, no, no, it's, you know, sin, sin and, and disobedience is a, is, a, is a taught concept. We're taught to do bad. We, we learn how to do bad from people. Let me, let me just, like, for a second, because I love philosophy and love thinking through these things. If someone ever tells you that, 
Think through the implications of that statement. Oh, no, human beings are inherently good. We just learn to be bad. At some point, someone had to learn to be better than teach that, right? It doesn't even make sense if you take it back to its logical conclusion. Somewhere along the line, there had to be at least one bad person who taught the rest of the world how to be bad, right? Meaning that that, that actual worldview is self-defeating. And so, in and of itself... Right? We have the Bible saying to us, because of the sin of Adam, you and I right, are born with a death sentence. So, original sin is real, right? I just answered your objection. Hopefully that's enough for you. If you want more, I'll come, come up and see me after the service. I'll give you more examples. But objection number two. All right, Kevin, I'll, I'll submit to you. Yes, I, 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 I'm born a sinner. But it's still not fair that I'm guilty for Adam's sin. Okay. First of all, we need to understand this, that you are not just like Adam, you are in him. That's what the Bible teaches. And because of that, we need to understand a little bit about what was going on in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Right? When God created Adam and Eve, he created them as representatives of humanity. It wasn't just like, hey, I'm going to create, they actually represented us as human beings. This is why you can go back in Romans chapter 2. And you, and, and you can see Paul saying that even though someone does not know the law, they can still be guilty and held underneath God's wrath. Because the law of God is written on our hearts and morality. God had done that from the outset. Right, so if you look at verses 13 and 14 here, like look at what he says. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was even given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. What, what Paul is saying there is, hey, look, you guys saw what God had said to Adam. He, he had said to Adam, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you, death will, you will die. And then we see that after Adam, men and women die for generations after Adam, even though the law wasn't around, right? The, the law doesn't come around until Moses, meaning that death reigned from Adam to Moses because we are in him, and death has been around even without the law because human beings are in Adam. Now, here's another theological term for you. Us being represented by Adam and therefore being guilty for his sin is a biblical idea called federal headship or federal representation, okay? Fancy term, right? The Bible teaches that you and I, as human beings, are a part of the greater whole of humanity and that God created us. And I'm not talking about a new world order here or, or one nation. I'm not talking about that because I know some of you guys are going to get political. This is not political, right? This just means in the concept of our relationship with God, Adam was created to be a representative for mankind. Now, this is hard for us in this room. I know it is because we're Westerners. And Western society and philosophy is incredibly individualistic. How many of you guys were told as a kid that you could be whatever you want? Most of you in this room. That's a lie. You can't. Most of you in this room do not carry the genetics to be a professional football player. I ask Gideon all the time, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a professional football player. Sorry, bro, you don't have the genes. You, you just do not have the genetics, dude. It's, it's not going to happen. Well, I think I'll be a soccer player. You also do not have the genetics for that. I apologize to you, but look at me. You need to be heading in another direction, right? Sports are a hobby for you. They're not going to be a, a living for you, all right? That, that if someone told you you could be anything you want, while it may be encouraging, 
is more than likely a lie. Okay, but that's, that's kind of how Western philosophy is. That's how as Americans we're told, hey, if you just work hard enough and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you can make it. Right, you can, you can be there. Right, I was told, right, all I had to do was keep my head down, work hard through middle school and high school, that I would get into college, and then if I went to college, I would get a degree, and if I had a degree, I would get a good paying job right out of college, and I would be able to afford a house and all these things. Lies. All lies. Guess what happened when I graduated college? 2008. Housing market crash. There weren't any jobs. Right? I would call and ask for like an interview and they would laugh at me like we just laid off 100 people. What are you talking about? Well, wait a minute, I was told I could be whatever I want to be. Right? This isn't to say that hard work and, and keeping your head down and doing these things are important, but because we teach this, we therefore, as Westerners, have this kind of inherent idea that even comes from our very documents as Americans, right, that tells us that we're all created equal with certain inalienable rights, right, that I can be anything I want and I can do anything I want. Therefore, when we say that, that someone else represents you in a certain situation and you don't like that representation, you get mad. But here's the, here's the thing, and this is what's really interesting about us, right? When I said that you're guilty for Adam's sin, probably every one of us, that the hair on the back of our neck stood up a little bit. Right? It's like, I don't, I don't like that. Right? I don't like being declared guilty for Adam's sin. But you don't have a, a, a major problem with, with the idea of, of federal headship in other situations. How many of you guys voted in the election for a president or a local congressman or senate person? Well, that, I mean, that's what you're doing. By, by electing someone in the House or the Senate, you are electing someone to represent you and your interests in Washington. That it's probably not a great idea to have every single American vote on whether we go to war or not. And so we elect right, representatives for us in Washington, and they're supposed to represent our interests. Now, whether you think that person does a good job or not is a different question. But we submit to this. If you've ever been to court, you might hire a lawyer. Guess what the lawyer is? The lawyer is federal headship representing you and your case in court. They are representing you. As a matter of fact, if you get a traffic ticket, you can pay a lawyer to go to court for you. And you don't even have to show up. They show up on your behalf for you. Right? That is federal headship or federal representation. Right? And so most of us don't have a problem with this type of representation insofar as we think it's fair or represents us in the way that we want to be represented. But when we look at Adam, right, we're like, I don't, I don't like this. I don't like what Adam did. Right? I wasn't there. That's not fair, God. I could have done a better job in the garden. Let me start by saying this. No, you wouldn't have. You would not have done a better job in the garden, and you are giving yourself way too much credit if you think you would have. Right, look at Romans chapter 3, verse 20 with me. For by works of the law, what? No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So basically what Paul is saying there is you're all messed up, and you're way worse than you think you are. The law just is there to reveal how messed up you are. Now, go with me to verse 23 in chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. So here's the reality. 
if you represented yourself in the Garden of Eden instead of Adam, I can promise you two things would be true. You still would have sinned, and you would still be unable to save yourself. You would have done the exact same thing that Adam and Eve did. Federal headship, that's being in Adam, guys, actually is good news. It, being, being guilty for Adam's sin is actually good news for you. You want to know why? Look at the end of verse 14 for me. In chapter 5. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. And look at this line. Who was a type of the one who was to come. That Adam, according to Paul, was the type of one who was to come. Here's what Paul's saying. God knew a second Adam was going to be sent to represent us, and he is way better than the first Adam, and guess what? He's also better than you. And that representative is Jesus. That before God the Father, you want representation. You want a lawyer. You want someone going in on your behalf, but you don't want Adam... And you surely don't want yourself representing you. But Paul is saying, guess what? A second representative comes along, and that's Jesus Christ. Now here's the question. How is he better? Right? How do we know that this is right? How do we know that he is better? Look at verses 15 through 18. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigns through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. All right, look at what he does. Right, he says he's going to contrast the two federal heads. He's going to contrast the two representatives. He's going to contrast Adam to Jesus. He's going to contrast right, the free gift and the trespass. Right, look at what he says. Right? Adam brings death, verse 15. Jesus brings what? Life. Look at verse 16. Adam brings condemnation. Jesus brings what? Justification. Look at verse 17. Death reigns, meaning we're in slavery to sin through Adam. That's what that means. Yet through Jesus, what? Life reigns. We're free from sin. We're no longer slaves for it, through it. If Adam can screw everything up in one act of disobedience, I love this. Look at verse 18. Much more will those in Jesus receive righteousness because one act leads to justification for all. Jesus is the better Adam. 
Jesus is the better, better federal head. That federal representation isn't bad. We just need the right representative. That, and, and here's the, the beautiful thing. God has taken care of this. Right, so you kind of have some options. Right, here's, here's how I want to conclude our time today. You, you have some options sitting in the room here this morning. All right? What, answer this question. What is reigning in you? Does sin abound or does grace abound? Because the reality is, as we've seen right through these verses so far, you are born in sin and you are born being represented by Adam whether you like it or not. You can be mad about it all you want, but it's a reality. I hopefully kind of revealed to you that Adam does represent you, but even if you were your own representation, it's not good representation. You're still sinful. You still fall short of the glory of God. You are just like your father Adam, the same way that you were probably just like your original father and mother when we used that example earlier, whether your habits or, or the things that you do wrong are the same things your father or your mother did. And we're just mimicking our parents before us. But here's the, here's the good news, guys. It doesn't have to be that way. You, you don't have to be in Adam. Right? Jesus is the better Adam. Jesus is far better than you. Right? Look at verses 19 through 21. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As the law comes to reveal our sin to us, it gives us no, it gives us no excuse. As, as the language of Paul says here, it increases sin. So if you think you could outperform Adam, you can't. But here's the reality. If you know how sinful you are, guess what? You know how great Jesus is. He's a great Savior. He's a great King. He's a great God. I want you to think about this for a second. Go with me to Genesis chapter 2 really quickly. This is what we're up against. This is how amazing Jesus is. Adam was, was created to represent humanity. And this is all he had to do. Look at this. Starting in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat for it, and the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, Earlier on in that passage, right, basically, right, what God does is he promises blessing to Adam. And he gives him dominion and authority over everything that is created. And he places them in this beautiful garden that provides all of his needs. And all he has to do is work and tend it and not eat from that tree. That's it. 
that the entire promise to Adam as our representative of humanity is to love me, enjoy me, and work the land. That's it. And in that, you will perfectly worship me, you will enjoy life, you will experience joy and happiness, that you won't experience brokenness. That's all you have to do. You're promised nothing but blessing as the representative if you simply follow the one command. And guess what? He can't do it. He can't follow it. He fails. Screws up. Sets all of humanity on a crash course for disaster as they try to run their own lives and not trust in God. Now, instead, now let's, let's, just, let's keep Adam in mind. Now go with me to the book of Luke. We're going to hop around to a couple different chapters in the book of Luke. And I want, to, I want you to see the calling that was placed on Jesus. Right? The calling on Adam was nothing but blessing. Yeah, look at Jesus, starting in, in Luke chapter 4. Look at verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Now go over to verse 13 with me. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus was sent here, and one of the first things he does as he begins his public ministry is what? To have to go toe-to-toe with Satan, the fallen angel who's God's arch-nemesis. Adam have to put up with that? I mean, kind of, yeah. It wasn't 40 days worth. And it certainly wasn't to the extent that Jesus went through. And yet here you have Jesus being tempted and standing the test of time. Now go over to Luke chapter 7 with me. Starting in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? So John, after proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, said, like, is this the guy? Right? So here you have, right, Jesus doing all these things, and look at what he says. And when the men had come to him, and they, asked, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So here you have Jesus doing exactly what God said the Messiah was going to do. Heal the sick, heal the lame, exercise demons out of people and preach the good news that Jesus is continuing to be obedient and he's sharing that directly to John's disciples. Now, turn over to Luke chapter 9. And look at verses 21 and 22. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day. Excuse me, and be killed and on the third day be raised. That Jesus knew his very calling as our representative was to be sent to live and love and heal and preach 
and obey the Father perfectly, and yet he knew at the end of his life that he was being sent to be put to death and crucified by wicked men. Jesus was sent to obey when Adam hadn't, and yet he did. His promise, though, that his death would actually fulfill Adam's blessing. That we would know God fully and worship him. That his life and death and resurrection is credited to us as righteousness. As if we had done it. As if Adam had done it. Christ did it on our behalf as our representative. And if you go back to Romans chapter 5 verse 21, look at what he says. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is reigning in you? What is reigning in you this morning? As we've seen here, sin, sin, sin's bad news. Being an Adam is bad news. And what typically we tell ourselves in our sinfulness and our Western individualism is that, okay, yeah, there's bad news, but I can do this. Right? I, can, I can do the right thing. I can do what God's asked of me. I can do better. I can be better than Adam. I can't. You cannot meet God's standard. But the grace of God is far better than your sin. And Jesus Christ came and met that standard for you. Jesus is the better way. Submit to him this morning. You have a federal representative already. Let it be Jesus. By repentance of your sin, that's confessing your sin and asking God to forgive you and change you. And faith that Jesus is who he said he was. That Jesus really came, he lived, he lived a perfect life on your behalf and then died on the cross when he shouldn't have been put to death so that he might pay the penalty of your sin and credit to you his righteousness. That's the good news. That God sent Jesus as your representative. He paid the penalty for your sin and Adam's. And he's given to you his perfect life. And by repentance and faith in Jesus, you are adopted as sons of the Most High God. Guys, that's why we're here this morning. That's why we worship Jesus is the better way. We're going to take communion here in just a moment. Right? And, and here's what I need you to know as we take communion. Communion should be a very solemn and worshipful act for someone who professes to be a follower of Jesus. That, that what is happening when, when you take the bread and the juice, right, is, is you are saying, I am a sinner who is unable to get to God, but praise be to God that he sent Jesus Christ who poured out his own flesh and his own blood for me. And you are saying that you are identifying 
with the cross of Christ and that you died with him and you rose to new life in him. And that by taking communion, you're not sorrowful. You're not ashamed of your sin, but you are joyfully, by repentance and faith, coming up here and worshiping Jesus for what he's done. And so here's the thing, right? We're going we're gonna to play some more songs, right? And we take communion here every week. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, if, if by repentance and faith you have come to him, I invite you to come up here and take communion, right? I want you to worship Jesus. I want you to thank him for what he's done. If, if you're here this morning, you're like, I, I don't know. Like Kevin's been talking about some heavy theological terms, right? He's been trying to listen to this, and I don't know if I'm in Christ. Come find me, Derek. Raise your hand. Find Derek. Find somebody, talk to them. Like, I don't know if I'm a Christian. Guys, I grew up in the church. That, did, that no more saved me than living next to a soccer field made me a professional soccer player. Right? Had, had no impact on me. It wasn't until I was a sophomore in college that God in his mercy radically revealed my own sin before me and then also exposed to me the beauty of what Jesus Christ had done. And in that beauty, I for the first time understood the depth and the magnitude of what Jesus Christ did for me. There is no love that can top the cross. There's none. That song that we sang earlier, he shouted love on the cross. That, that is what we're talking about. Right? Romans chapter 5. That God's love for you was shouted and declared as Christ was at his lowest on the cross. For you and for me. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I ask that instead of taking communion, you would reflect and you would ask God to reveal himself to you and that you would by repentance and faith confess your sin, repent of it, and trust in Jesus. And then if you do that, freely come up here and take communion, worshiping him and thanking him for what he's done. My prayer is that we would leave here this morning with a bigger view of God, because guess what? He's worthy of it. Where there was no hope because of Adam, there is hope because of Jesus. It was the Father's perfect plan to save us through his Son. Let's worship him and thank him for that. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that even as my own heart wrestles with texts like this morning, right, wanting to cry out in my stubbornness and my selfishness how unfair it is that I'm represented by Adam. The reality is, is that my own sinfulness would betray me even if I wasn't. And yet, God, in your mercy, you sent your only son to die for me, a wicked, filthy sinner. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Right? That is the banner and cry of every disciple of Jesus Christ. Lord, reveal yourself to us. Father, convict us of sin and draw us to repentance and trust in your Son. And may we be marked as men and women, not known as being Christians who have it all together or judgmental or whatever it may be, but we, may we be known as great sinners who have an even greater Savior.
And may we be known as men and women who make much of you because you are so worthy. That the truths of what we see this morning declare the beauties and the richness of your grace towards us. Father, I love the men and the women in this room in a way that they cannot understand. And yet, Father, great comfort comes to me in knowing that you love them even more. Reveal that to them this morning. May they know the depths and the riches of your love towards them. Father, thank you for your son. May we worship you in this time of communion and song, reflection, and prayer. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Thank you, guys.